the ideal amount of time for a new hire training program, in my experience, is somewhere between a week and a half to two and a half weeks. I see companies who think three days of orientation is training and they're wrong. I see companies that think they're giving people three months is the right thing to do and they're wrong. If you have a seller who's willing to sit in a training class for three straight months, you do not have a sales profile. Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer record platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders of high growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're going to interview Lauren Bailey. Lauren is a sales expert and founder of Factor 8, a company dedicated to building confidence with frontline sales representatives and managers. She is also founder of Sales Bar, a platform offering unlimited inside sales specific curriculum for a monthly subscription price. And she also started Girls Club a training program that seeks to change the face of sales by empowering more women to earn roles in leadership. Welcome to our show, Lauren. Hey, sorry about the mouthful. No, that's fantastic. It's an honor and it's fantastic that you can handle all that kind of work. You have to tell us about that. How do you manage to do all those things yeah. at the same time? I, clearly, I went insane. I started two of the three. Factory is 12 years old, but the Sales Bar and Girls Club I founded in the same year wow. in 2018, which is just... I mean, obviously. But I mean, uh, you've achieved what you wanted, right? With those two projects. I'm really proud of them. Yeah, I'm really proud of them. And, and it, it truly was the right thing at the right time. Had we not started the sales bar two years ago, we wouldn't have been prepared to go virtual with mm -hmm. our, our training. Or I'd be out of business today. I want to start with the ugly uh, part of, of the conversation. Uh, the, the quicker we go into that subject, the better, I guess. We haven't talked about the emotional and psychological consequences of the past economic downturn and the pandemic, uh, specifically among sales team members. I guess that salespeople immediately see their KPIs affected by the situation, of course. I mean, they probably are not reaching uh, the same sales numbers as they were reaching a few months ago. So can you tell us uh, more about that uh, from your own experience? How do you see this thing affecting them emotionally and psychologically? Yeah, what, a, what an insightful question. Thank you for that. I do get a chance to talk with lots of sellers and frontline managers and sales leaders. And um, I would say that the world changed for them about every six weeks, right? At the beginning, everybody mm. was like, oh, crap, how do we get everybody to work from home? We're all about the technology and, you know, the WFH very quickly became an acronym that we all knew. And then it was, okay, now how do I get people to manage remotely? And then it was on the manager trying to figure that out. And then it was, oh, crap, do we have to change our go-to-market strategies? Where do we have to pivot to find new sales? And then it was, ah, here's another pivot. Do I have to change my goals, right? Like, yeah. is it fair to keep people to the same quota? And let's be honest, like everybody made some sort of a pivot and some industries took off, some turned left or right, some went down, some died. But in every one of those cases, the frontline managers and the sales reps went 
through a lot. I'm not hitting goal. Uh, there were mass layoffs that happened. I have to learn how to work in a new way. I'm working in my bathroom because <laughs> I have four roommates. Uh, my manager is still telling me I have to hit the same goal, but I'm selling to restaurants for Christ's sakes. So, I mean, I saw people all over the place. And it, in the end, it really came down to leadership because leadership is who pivoted to the right markets and the new strategies to keep companies alive. Leadership are the ones who thought about their teams and that psychological impact. The ones who said, we're not changing anything. You still owe the number. Um, nothing's different except for everything in your life. Their teams really struggled. It, you know, as I was going through that continuum of everything that changed, what I hear about now is just the, how do we keep doing this? How do I keep them motivated? Right. As you're going through change, we're all on top of it. Now it's like, yeah, I've been doing this grind in my jammies now for six <laughs> months. <laughs> uh, do you work remotely? Is that new? Yeah. Day? Yeah. I'm here in my bedroom almost next to my you bedroom. <laughs> Were you like pre-pandemic remote? No, we, we didn't do it. I was working on a startup and we have a co-working space, you know, a beautiful co-working space with free coffee and beer and we could play yeah, video games. But yeah, and suddenly we are here with my dog next to me all day long. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I've been remote working since I was in charge of international enablement for SAP. So when I wasn't on a plane, I was working out of my living room. So that's like 15 years mm. that I've been remote. So it's been really fun to watch the rest of the world go through this uh like there's this elation of, I don't have a commute and isn't that great? And I'm going to work out in the mornings and I'm going to own my schedule. And then, you know, fast forward to now and it's like, is four days too long to go without a shower? Yeah. Like what's really the under over on disgustingness? Can I really wear my jammies? <laughs> we're, we're all, we go through that slide and, and our psyches go, <laughs> go with our hygiene. <laughs> Yeah, and about that, um, what kind of measures have you seen that some companies and leadership teams have taken in order to help and aid their salespeople uh, so they can feel less uncertainty and all those uh, bad things? Um, all kinds of things, right? There's there's re-swizzling of goals and of targets. I think that's a huge one that people make. The switching, uh, buying some tools to help remote coaching, um, video use, um, dashboarding. The last thing you want is to be have a remote manager micromanaging you, right? You owe 10 more dials today. So I, some of my friends that, that have tools like Ambition um, and Level 11 that are those kind of remote celebration gamification of dashboard things that usage has spiked up. Conversational intelligence tools like Gong and Chorus mm -hmm. and Exec Vision that help you record calls. That's gone up. Um, a lot of companies spent more time investing, training in their people. They're going to have some time off phones. Now we can do a better job of developing them. We saw all kinds of happy hours and games and you know team building, etc. Uh, some of the best advice that leaders shared with me was just actually now getting off the video calls because, you know, it was new and it was great, but now it's a pain in the butt to go video, 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 video. So they would just pick up the phone and call their people and see how they're doing. Many companies are now having the opportunity, you know, depending on where you live, to go back into an office. And they're finding about 20, 30% of their people want to go back and have the structure And others have adapted to the work from home. Yeah. So there's a million different things you can do, but I don't think anybody's got this silver bullet of everybody on my team is feeling mentally happy and healthy and performing optimally and feels the connection to the team. Because let's be honest, it's not just about working from home. It's this uncertainty of, you know, freak, I got to wear a mask to the grocery store. And how's my company doing? And I, I liked when people talked about leaders meeting more frequently with their people and a lot of transparency. 
Here's what the company's doing to adapt. Your job is or isn't safe. Here's how we're changing things. The more they communicated with the people, the better the people felt. But interestingly enough, now sales leaders have the challenge that globalizing forces have had for years, right? I've got people sitting at like new hire is the hardest, right? new mm-hmm. hire training. I got 10 people all sitting in remote locations and I have to onboard them. That's not different. If you don't mind me bringing it back to the conversation of, I've hired three people in Mexico city and I've got one person in Singapore and I've got, you know, it's very similar. I wanted to ask this question further down the line, but I think it is a good moment to do it right now because I see a bit of a paradox here regarding how we use technology and how technology has changed uh, sales in the last maybe 20 years, because, you know, we have a lot of technological tools now that seem to make the sales process easier, at least easier to follow, to document, to capture data and things like that. But in the end, a lot of the training that you do, a lot of the conversations uh, you take part of and the presentations you'd make, I wrote something as simple as talking to one person over the phone. Well, 100%. So what's happened with the tech stack, okay? So if I can go really global for a second, I promise to be faster on this answer. But I think that the huge changes have come in the last 10 years, right? As the customer's buyer's journey started to change 15 years ago, marketing, damn, they were on it, right? Marketing and Marcom and MarTech, they just snapped right to it. And they're mapping to the customer's journey and we like the right tools at the right time. And you can see more data about customers than ever, right? Sales then started to come to the game. And I think that we overfixed on the tech stack, right? The, uh, an average rep went from 3.2 to about 14 tools in the last five years. Wow. We also, by the way, at the very same time, we're experiencing a lack of unemployment. So when I would hire reps 20 years ago, we all had the same profile, right? College grad, two years of the sales experience, played a competitive sport. And, and now <laughs> you can't hire that. In fact, the average lifespan of an SDR is down to 15 months. You find somebody with two years of sales experience, they're burnt out. It, like we are teaching young people to hate sales. So what we did is we overplayed the science and underplayed the art. We gave them more to do and manage with triple the tools. We segmented their job and Uber specialized it. Yeah. We, 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 we gave them scripts to make up for it. And we hired them younger with less experience, which is exactly why you watched the trust of the public and salespeople plummet. Yeah, you, you mentioned that in your presentations, you mentioned that only 3% of the population trusts salespeople. I had to redo that deck when I talked about it over the last two years. Like every few months, there was a new and lower number. The only people we beat now are politicians. That's an awful thing to say. Like, thank God, I, I rue the day when the politicians, people trust more than salespeople. We, we, haven't, we haven't raised our game. We are selling with this, like through all of that, the way we train and how we invest in training with our people hasn't changed. Through all of that change, we're still trying to train them and onboard them and manage them the same way. And I think it's a tragedy. What you're telling me is that basically technology has dehumanized sales, the sales process? Not all technology. I think the systemization, um, I think being ruled by technology has sometimes dehumanized sales. And here's why I put the caveat in there, Diego. It's like yeah. some technology has helped humanize it. Our Zoom video conferencing, our bomb bomb video emailing, like they are working to rehumanize sales. But as sales leaders, I think that we buy tools that we were looking for silver bullets. I think that we buy tools we wish we had when we were uber super performers, because we would do great with them. And if I were to say, Ooh, here we go. I'm going to be a little controversial. Here's what I think has dehumanized sales. 
venture capital and SaaS. That's what's dehumanized sales because the, the, the nature of the beast is I have 10 portfolio companies. One is going to carry the other nine that fail. So the growth expectations for these SaaS firms, these venture-backed SaaS firms, is astronomical. It is, it, it, it's unsustainable. It's unnatural. It is wild, high and to the right growth. And when you do that, you don't bring people in to keep them with your company long-term. You throw reps on that fire like logs, right? You give them every tool you can. You try to systemize it. You take all the skill out of it that you can, and you build a machine. And that, I think, is what among many, many other factors, has dehumanized sales more. And that also leads towards less training and less investment on the employees themselves, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just got to get them up to speed as soon as possible. Give them the bare minimum. Give everybody a tiny little chunk of the job, right? Give them a script and a tool to accelerate them doing that job, at right? And just go, 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 go all day long. A good question for me that I've never been directly involved in a sales team is, well, can anyone do sales? I mean, what kind of personalities do better when trying to conduct sales, especially when you say this thing about how relevant it is to connect with people, in this case, over the phone or over Zoom or in person. But yeah. I don't know if everyone is able to develop that connection with people. No, you're right. Not everybody is. And I think that, again, in the past, when somebody was chatty and they were a big talker, we'd be like, oh, you should be in sales. And, and I'm shifting that pendulum myself in that because I think the best sellers are better listeners now. We're so sick as a consumer base. If I put on my buyer hat, not my seller hat, I'm sick of being sold at. Don't se stop selling at me, right? And the, the LinkedIn connections and the spam and the everybody, it, it's just, hi, my name's Lauren, buy this. It, just back the F off, man. So what are the right... Um, I'm a, I held that one in, Diego. I'm a, I'm a That's fantastic. In, in I saw that. <laughs> I, I, that was a live edit. I think that it's a pity. And the best personalities for sales to me are this. Number one, curious. I want somebody who wants to learn about companies, right? I'm hiring a BDR myself right now. And we are a consultative, long-term partner with our clients. I'm not trying to sell, you know, a $4.99 subscription at a high volume. So there is a, a difference, right? In the different profiles. Uh, we sell large deals and we partner for multiple years. I need somebody who can be a value add to the clients. I want somebody who can have a business conversation. And that starts with curiosity. You have to give a damn about learning about who they are, right? The second thing we're looking for is confidence. You've got to have the ability to speak up and to try again. It, it takes an average of six to eight calls to get one person on the phone. And if you take it personally, every time you get a voicemail and somebody doesn't call you back, you're not mm. going to live very long in sales. So there's some of that tough skin and some of that determination that has to come in. Um, that competitive spirit is part as well. If you can think of sales as a game or a sport, then again, you won't take it personally every time you get tackled in your own end zone, right? And you'll get back up and you'll do it again. I think that's part of it. And then the last one I would say is coachability, right? We have to constantly be willing to learn and grow and evolve. We've been in the training business for 12 years as factory, but I've been in that business for 20. And I will tell you uh, thousands of times I've heard the feedback, oh, well, we hired a sales experience. And there hasn't been one instance where that person didn't still have more to learn, either about sales or about the company or about the product or about the industry or about what's changed in the last five years. 
So stagnation will kill a salesperson. So those, those are some of the personality traits for sure. We always talk about what companies want out of people, but let's see the other way around. Yeah. What would make a salesperson remain inside a company and oh, truly, yeah. you know, wear the t-shirt and say, I'm part of yeah. this, I share the culture. I love it, be engaged. Yeah. I love it. Um, well, the, the, there's a study recently, I think Forbes published it, saying the number one thing that millennials are searching for when they're job hunting is the ability to train and develop and grow their careers. So that, a, a variation of that answer came in number one and number three, and then compensation came in. Number two. It's about growth. And we've joked about that with millennials forever. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I showed up three days in a row. I need a trophy and a raise. But but we have to provide that to keep people engaged. So career pathing, ongoing training and development so I can grow that career. They like access to bosses, like let us have a flat organization and let me be part of the team. Let me learn. Let me shadow. Let me grow. They like the ability to give back. They want to believe in the mission of the company and of the leaders. All those important. Um. What really then keeps them engaged? I think you can go back to just human nature on some of that, can't you? They say people join companies and leave bosses. It mm -hmm, worked for mm -hmm. me, right? I, I wouldn't have started my own company if I hadn't hated my boss. Yeah, we've all been true. So that. many entrepreneurs, I think, have that, right? Totally. Like, yeah. I don't fit in. I don't like the culture. I don't believe in what I'm doing. If they feel invested in and important, they'll stay. What traits or characteristics uh, can distinguish a good salesperson, but beyond the number of deals she or he can close in a month. You know, that's the basic stuff. She's a better salesperson because she has closed more deals than anyone here. But what about those that maybe are not that good at closing deals, but have all their characteristics, traits that are good for, for people in, in sales? Okay, so we're going to get beyond the personality attributes and get more into some of those leading indicators of how I could measure a great salesperson. Does that sound yeah. about right? Yeah. yeah. So um, think of it like um, a triangle, right? And at the very top, you've got, this is quota or growth or whatever my goal is. Those are the results. And at the very bottom, you've got the activity. And in the middle, you've got your KPIs and your ratios. Great leaders talk about the middle. Hard to get there. Um, most young managers basically stay at the bottom. And what they're doing is saying, I need more activity. And they're not wrong, okay? But if you manage to activity, you're never really inspiring the human being. Let's put it this way. When you ask a rep for a dial, you get a dial and that's all you get. So if you can help them aim higher, they're more engaged and you get better quality as well. So that being said, however, you can still look for leading indicators of rep success starting at the bottom. A rep who will make 50 dials and 20 emails a day is likely going to see more success than a rep who will make 20 dials and five emails a day. So effort is down there at the metrics, right? You can look at outbound dials. You can look at emails and messages mm -hmm. and social sent. You can look at a level higher and go with talk time, which is how often am I actually getting a chance for live selling time? Um, we call those first base skills at factory and their confidence building skills because you can't get home if you can't get on first. So if you can start by just doubling the amount of time you're talking to potential customers, a 50% increase at the top of the funnel has an incremental impact all the way down the funnel. So now you're going to get beyond some of those activities and get into the key performance indicators. Um, some ones I love are conversations that last over two minutes, um, scheduled callbacks, hmm. uh, booked meetings, quotes sent, follow-up emails sent, something that shows, something I can measure that shows, okay, we're moving down the right area. They're opening company information. They're 
attending demos, they're reading, they're coming, whatever it is, right? They're the, the customers taking action that shows they're engaged. That's what you're looking for there. Then if you're you're getting to secondary meetings or tertiary meetings, quotes or proposals sent, demos performed, what percent of second appointments booked show? Love the show rate. That shows the quality of the people on the front end. What percentage of the, the people who come to the second appointment close for the third, right? So you can measure those close rates all the way down the funnel as well. Um, then as you're getting towards the end of the sale, we can look at revenue. We can look at average deal size or recurring revenue amounts, lengths of deals. Uh, a lot of account managers are looking at penetration or growth numbers. It's very common if I own a book or a business with 100 accounts that I basically make 80-20, right? 80% of my revenue off the top 20 accounts, and I never touch the rest of them. So we might look at additional lines in an order, additional product or service categories, additional contacts added into the base, the touch rate of the base, the engagement of the base. I mean, I've just talked for 800 straight minutes, haven't I? Sorry, no, so that's fantastic. You're giving us a lot of insights, and that's yeah, the point. I mean... Like a lot of entrepreneurs are probably at this moment building their sales teams and they have no idea of all these KPIs and it's fine. Crazy. Yeah. It's like sales is like baseball. Yeah. <laughs> That's all there is to it. We measure everything. Um, a great book for leaders doing that is Cracking the Sales Management Code. That's something that's a great resource that kind of helps you look at KPIs and, and things differently. Because as I was giving all of those examples, um, they're right for different types of sellers and different types of roles and different types of sales cycles. What happens when it's time to grow a sales team internationally? I mean, what are the mistakes that you see that most entrepreneurs or uh, business leaders you know, make when designing this new global sales strategy and building an international sales team? So this is a tough one, right? I, some, of, some of what I'm doing is talking about mistakes I've made, but also going into my way back machine as I was traveling between 2000 and 2018. I spent a ton of years traveling globally and launching inside sales teams for companies. And sometimes we did it with partners, uh, you know, outsourcing organizations. Uh, sometimes we did it in-house. Dang, I wish I knew about companies like globalization partners. I started to go uh, with Factory down the road of international growth and then pulled back because I didn't have the right kind of presence in the areas and mm -hmm. screwed that up. All right, so mistakes that I've seen people make in doing that. Um, it's definitely not one size fits all. And that is true, whether it's your go-to-market strategy, whether it's your product set, whether it's your marketing language, right? All of the above, we have to look at the difference in the cultural norms in the languages. Um, the funnest part to me about globalization is the stupid mistakes we make with you know, translations yeah. and whatnot. I've definitely been caught with my pants down a few times on stupid stuff in, in that area. I, I think we have to realize that not all teams are motivated the same, yeah. nor do they sell the same. Us Yanks, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. In America, we are considered pretty pushy and obnoxious sellers by most of the rest of the world, right? You would agree? Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah, right? So we can't necessarily take our tactics and how we uh, and how we sell to our customers globally, nor can we take the way we manage people, right? We have the least amount of vacation than anywhere else in the world. When I was hiring my my lead in Germany, the he was 10 years my junior, made about 20 grand more than I did, got a company car and three times the vacation. There are different cultural norms places, you, right? And we, we we can't assume that we're the experts. So I think that the number one advice I have is you've got to find the 
local flavor. You've got to find the local expert, whether that's your leader or your partner. You don't let, you know, a guy sitting in Georgia on his own open and run teams in EMEA or, mm-hmm. you know, Eastern Europe or Asia. You've mentioned culture and that's a very interesting topic. I mean, you, you for example, have made presentations where you identify several types of intros, for example, for sales calls. So how much do you have to change those strategies and scripts when doing sales internationally? I mean, you have to capture some cultural differences between clients and territories, right? You absolutely do. But you also have to capture cultural differences for every single client you work with which is why any kind of training we're going to do is going to be blended and customized. You have to do it that way, right? I can tell you that these are the psychological components of a really great introduction and why it works, right? And for that example, Diego, it's based on this theory. Nobody's waiting for your call, right? Some companies are and cultures are going to be ruder than others, right? But if you're prepped for the rudeness of an American, you're going to be sitting pretty in Asia and and the UK, et cetera. Um, and, And the goal of the intro is not to sell anything but to get the other person talking. Once you get them talking, you can have a conversation. That is true anywhere on this earth, right? So the the psychology behind it is sound. Now, how you execute it gets to be customized. Some people come in hard. Their intro is about, here's exactly what I'm gonna be able to do for you. I've perked your ear, I've made promises, I've come across bold, and now I've gotten you talking. I can't use that intro. And even being a yank, that's too hard of a sell for me. Mine is, my goal is to see if maybe I can help you do X, Y, and Z, where I've perked your ear with that benefit, but I'm not coming in telling you, I'm coming in asking you. That fits my culture, even though I'm still an American. When we teach that in the UK, we find that we front end it with more pleasantries. People will take the time to say, yeah, yeah, how's it going? And how are you? And are you doing well? And I hope this finds you well. And hey, listen, the reason for my call... We don't have to fit the whole thing into four seconds because we have a little longer there, right? And when we do this in Asia, we have to ask for more permission to continue. The much more respect is given on both sides of that equation. So if we were to say this is the way to do a call opening on an outbound cold call or warm call and say one side spits off for the whole world, we'd be fooling ourselves. Every company, every person, every culture has to make it their own. So we'll give the steps and the outline, and then be flexible in the execution of it and coach towards it. But if you listen to enough recorded calls from any culture, yeah, it's, it's not too hard to find those nuances. I'm pretty sure that everyone agrees when talking about how essential training is and, and to constantly train your teams. And in this case, I mean, we are having and, and talking about examples, you know, of specific situations like international expansion, when you have to be a bit more reactive, it's like, okay, we have to train our sales people because we are starting to sail in this specific territory. But what would it be an ideal training strategy for a, for a company that has a sales team? Ideally, how many trainings should they have each year or how often? What would be a, an ideal training strategy for a sales team? Yeah, here's a couple baselines. First and foremost, you want to make sure you have a line item in your budget every year for development. Um, it, we don't have the level of employees we used to. And if you want to keep them engaged, you can't just wait for a budget surplus every few years to do it. Right. So get it right there by your recruiting and your tools budgets. Cause we both know you added those line items in the last 10 years. Um, the average is somewhere between three and 5% of salary you're going to spend on training and development. Now for your actual answer to the question, the average number of hours of training 
per year are around 40, somewhere between 30 and 50. Now, that being said, if you're starting from scratch, what's it look like, you know, from cradle to grave? Mm-hmm. So when you're starting in cradle, um, I, I'm going to try to draw a diagram with my hands, but imagine that you're taking your arms and you're kind of crossing them in front of your body until you're making an X, right? So when somebody is new, your horizontal axis is time on job, right? And your vertical axis is training hours, young on job, full-time training right? Then older on job training is coming down, but it's in a curve. It doesn't go straight down and it never hits zero, right? And then of course, performance is your other line that Mm -hmm. says, okay, I'm brand new on the job. My training's down here close to zero and now it's going to go up, but it never stops growing. So it's not a straight line and it never hits zero and it doesn't max out. So somebody's coming in, the ideal amount of time for a new hire training program, in my experience, is somewhere between a week and a half to two and a half weeks. I see companies who think three days of orientation is training and they're wrong. I see companies that think they're giving people three months is the right thing to do and they're wrong. If I can be that bold. If you have a seller who's willing to sit in a training class for three straight months, you do not have a sales profile. So after a few weeks of new hire training, then we put them on the floor and they're in part-time training. So imagine that you're building new hire for their first month on the job. Most of their first month is I'm going to be learning. I'm going to be leaving voicemails. I'm going to be updating CRM. I'm going to hopefully talk to a few customers, but at best, I'm going to have 30 first calls. I don't have to train them yet for the second call and the third call. I need to teach them how to find people in the CRM, not how to process a return. So if you orient it towards sort of just in time training, which is what I call that graph, then you're on the right track. So their first three months on the job, they may still be spending 10 hours a week in the class, which is great. They can apply it on the job, but you never get all the way to zero. So now you've got somebody who's actually at quota or more tenured, and maybe they're doing training two, three hours a month, sharpening different skills, learning about different products, taking next level skills, preparing for the next promotion, et cetera. I was wondering if you could share with us a story of maybe a real example of a person, you know, that maybe had some training with your company, with Factor 8, and went through all this process, you know? This prototypical person we've been talking about, someone that maybe we saw that had these traits, these characteristics at the beginning, but didn't have the training, and then suddenly was prepared and became a great salesperson. Can you share a story like that? I'm, it's, it's hard to pick, but I got an email. It wasn't an email, it was a LinkedIn message. Oh, it might've been six weeks ago now from Sierra. And she was one of the first people I trained personally when I had a one person company. She worked for a temporary housing solution. So instead of putting companies, uh, employees who were traveling for work and had to do so long-term, instead of putting them up in a hotel or a budget suites, you would go through this company and they would help find in locations and it felt more like home. Anyway, they had moved from a field to an inside uh, blended field approach and hired a whole bunch of reps and it just wasn't going well. They had done training. They'd been on the floor for a couple of weeks and it was just kind of flat. They weren't getting anywhere. I used to work with their VP of operations and he pulled me in and said, help, right? I've spent money on this training and it's just not happening. I've got everything from call reluctance to people vomiting all over the customers on the phones, but we're getting nowhere. So we custom designed, um, it was the birth of a lot of our factory curriculum. We Mm. custom designed an outbound series of modules for them in getting appointments and finding the right people and uncovering the needs and qualifying the accounts to find out what they were worth to you before you went after 
selling them hard. And it was tremendously successful. They went from like 30% to quota to 110% to quota and just in days and relaunched the whole program. It was fabulous. It gave me the confidence to say, yeah, this is the right curriculum. I'm going to officially move my company in this direction. Anyway, I thought of Sierra because she sent me a note on LinkedIn. And this is like the very, very best part of my job. It's 12 years later, 11 years later. Thank you so much. I still use this. It helped me get to the top. Now I'm leading a team. It made a whole difference in my life and career, right? And she's a mom now and sent me kids pictures. And, but that's, that's the beauty of what I get to do every day, right? We get to change lives and the beauty of the sales profession, because there's no other job where you have that control. If you're a super high performer, you're going to be paid like a super high performer Mm. and you have a chance to change the life for you and your family. It's a great example of how training can see immediate results. That's what you basically said. Oh God, yeah, it should. You should see spikes right away. The hard part is, shouldn't be in seeing a spike. The hard part is typically in sustaining Yeah, we're approaching the end of this conversation, but I want to talk, of course, about Girls Club, because as I mentioned before, it's a training program that seeks to change the face of sales by empowering more people to earn roles in leadership. So, I mean, I'm going to be a bit naive here because we know that in many industries, there is, you know, a big difference between the number of men and women in leadership positions, unfortunately. But I mean, one would think that in a country like the U.S., for example, where half the population, as many other parts in the world, is women, there would be a similar percentage of women in sales teams, um, why yeah, this is this isn't the case? What are the consequences of this? Yeah, it's 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 really bad. In fact, there's only one industry that has fewer um, women leaders than sales, and that is the supply chain industry. In other words, Diego, long haul trucking has yeah. fewer women in leadership than sales, and that's it. Everybody like ah, it's bad. And I I just got so sick of talking about it. I decided to try to do something about it. So I I think your question is, is it really that disparate or why is it that disparate? Why is it that different? And especially what are the consequences of this? Because of course, if you're trying to sell something, a product or a service aimed to the overall population and you have only men and and doing so, you will fail. Well, there's a lot of studies that will tell you that women outperform men in selling, um, that women-led sales teams outperform male-led sales teams, that women sales leaders outperform and even companies with women CEOs. But I don't think it needs to be a competition. I don't mean it like that, right? I think the consequences of not having more women in your front lines and your midlines is that you're you're condemning yourself to a very long history of not having more women. Women hire more diverse teams. It's well proven, right? Um, and, and what I've learned through working with the amazing women who come through our Girls Club training program the last two years is that they won't go to companies where they don't see women. So it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy and only continue to get worse and cycle on. So a woman's not going to apply if you don't have any women in leadership, right? So that's the first thing you can do to attract more women. If your website is full of white dudes and that's it, um, fix it. And until then, take the pictures down, yeah. <laughs> right? And that's all there is to it. But you're, you're creating an ever a long-lasting cycle in that way. Um, I think that you can't assume everybody wants to buy from that very same profile of male or white male or 30 year old white male or whatever the case may be. The world is a beautiful mosaic of different colors and types and, and your customers are that mosaic as well. So if you don't represent it, obviously you're going to hurt yourself and you're hurting yourself long-term. That's the consequences of, um, what's funny is people are starting to get it. I, that's probably the number one question I get now from sales leaders is how do I get more women? 
to apply for my positions. Like the women I have on my team are killing it. How do I get more? How do I fix this? And you have to take some drastic action and, and be committed to it long term. Yeah, and, and and my last question is about that, and 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 I think that is something transversal to all your training, but especially true and 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 useful for women is this confidence gap. You know, is that thing that you are able to do this, and and in this case, please explain us how does the approach of Girls Club towards overcoming this confidence gap? Yeah, that's the silver bullet for us, right? Girls Club's about getting frontline sellers into management, that first level. And we do it with the sales management skills, the hard skills, the training that we take from factory. But the second leg of the stool is the confidence building. And we address it head on in a multitude of different ways. Um, and, and I'll finish out the stool really quick. The third leg of the stool is community with mentors and role models. Mm. The seat of the stool is spotlight in her company and outside. Mm. Um, and it combines to create magic. We have a massive promotion rate and it really works. But let's talk about the confidence building because this is what was near and dear to my heart. I, I grew up a severely underconfident little girl. Um, and then as I got higher and higher in corporations, I learned how to fake it pretty well, but I wasn't sure I really believed it. So my theory is that more women aren't raising their hand to get into sales leadership because of the confidence gap. We don't apply for something until we're ready to do it perfectly. We don't take the risk, right? And then mm. there's studies on it. Men apply at 60%, women wait until they're 100%, which means if I don't have one of the bullets in your job posting, I'm not applying for it. And I've seen that happen, right? And I thought, okay, that's it. That's what we're going to solve for is quashing that. So our goal in the in the confidence building leg of Girls Club curriculum is to quash some of the need for perfectionism and encourage more risk taking. One of the ways we do that, and probably one of the most powerful ways we do that is with something called a rise up on record. These are two to five minute webcam confessionals that we get from female sales leaders across the world in all different companies. And what we do on this, Diego, is we cop to the three Fs, fears, failures, and F-ups. And when you watch VP of international sales mm. say, boy, did I bite it last week. I did this, they did that, I thought this, right? And then you see a GM of a global company say, I've always been afraid of negotiating sound, whatever it is, right? I record one every month and kind of do this journey of growing my own self-confidence and try to learn out loud. We do it anyway. It's transformational. The women binge these like, what? I thought everybody else had it together. And it was just me who felt like a fraud. And it's not true. We all have those fears and the imposter syndrome. So we attack it that way. We do workshops on what we can do to build self-confidence. We bring speakers in who are inspiring to talk about these things. But I think the most powerful part of that is giving women a safe place to be very authentic and showing her leaders who are the same. Well, Lauren, it has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it. But above Thanks. all, I really learned a lot. And I hope that our listeners also learned a lot with this uh, interview. Thank you very much for your time, Lauren. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and remember that you can find all episodes on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts. If you're planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partner makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started. This is Going Global, presented by Globalization Partners.